Life Audio. You have joined Truth Tribe with Douglas Grotheis. This is where we seek the truth about the things that matter most through reason and evidence. Today, instead of uh, reading from an essay, which I sometimes do, I'd like to simply talk to you about my latest book in a shameless plug. This book is called World Religion, or World Religions in Seven Sentences, a small introduction to a vast topic. This is published by InterVarsity Press. I published another book in this series, really the first in this series, called Philosophy in Seven Sentences in 2016. And several other authors have followed up with this theme. Christopher Wright wrote a book called The Old Testament in Seven Sentences. Gary Burge, The New Testament in Seven Sentences. And Jennifer Woodruff Tate, Christian History in Seven Sentences. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. So, for good or ill, I came up with this idea of the seven sentences, and I'll try to defend that a little bit. I'm not trying to reduce philosophy or religion to single sentences, but rather I thought that some sentences are paradigmatic, or you might say are entry points into particular ideas. I'd like to actually write a book on bad philosophy in seven or eight sentences, or maybe something like seven or eight sentences that wreck the world. Haven't found a publisher on that yet. If you can help me out, please let me know, because there is a abundance of bad thinking out there that needs to be refuted as we try to take every thought captive to obey Christ, as Paul said. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5. But let me tell you a little bit about this book, World Religions in Seven Sentences. I wrote it because I have for many years taught on what we used to call comparative religion. And uh, some wag, it might have been Chesterton, said the study of comparative religion may make one comparatively religious. But I have always studied it as a evangelical Christian philosopher and apologist. I've taught a class for many years at Denver Seminary, which I designed back in the early 90s called Religious Pluralism. 
And in that course, we survey some of the major world religions and then develop a apologetic theology in response to those religions. Thus, having taught that class for many years, I thought, well, I think I could transfer that, as it were, into a manuscript or translate that into a manuscript, into a book. So, out came the book, World Religion in Seven Sentences, and I'm happy that I received endorsements from J.P. Moreland and Wayne House, Paul Copan, and so on. So what I want to do is survey some of what I say in the book. And I wrote the book not as a textbook on the world religions. On that, I would recommend Wynn Cordewin's book, Neighboring Faiths. This is not an in-depth treatment of how Christians should view other religions philosophically and apologetically. For that, I would commend the work of Harold Netland in his many books, uh, particularly his recent book, Christianity and Religious Diversity. I address the question of comparative religions in my apologetics textbook as well. But this book is a primer, and let me deal with an objection to it. Someone might say, this is not objective because you're defending Christianity. True. But one might fairly present the basic beliefs of other religions and fairly critique them and fairly and rationally commend the Christian perspective as objectively true, compellingly rational, and pertinent to the whole of life. So that's what I have attempted to do. I'm not pretending to be neutral. That is, I am committed to biblical revelation, to the cause of Christ, to apologetics, to evangelism. But that does not automatically disqualify me as being unfair or as having selected these sentences in some tendentious manner. So, let's go through some of these sentences. The first sentence is not a sentence of any religion, and it is from Friedrich Nietzsche, in his parable of the madman, and the statement is, God is dead. I was quite taken with Nietzsche as a young man in college during my first year, took a history of modern philosophy class, and Nietzsche was assigned reading. I purchased the book, The Portable Nietzsche, which for a time I carried around with me, almost like a uh, counter Bible. And in one of the writings, which was called The Gay Science, has nothing to do with our sense of gayness, there's a parable. And I want to read you some of this. It's very powerfully written. Have you not heard of that madman who lit a lantern in the bright morning hours, ran to the marketplace and cried incessantly, I seek God, I seek God. As many of those who do not believe in God were standing around just then, he provoked much laughter. Why, did he get lost, said one? Did he lose his way like a child, said another? Or is he hiding? Is he afraid of us? Has he gone on a voyage or emigrated? Thus they yelled and laughed. The madman jumped into their midst and pierced them with his glances. Whither is God, he cried, I shall tell you. We have killed him, you and I. All of us are his murderers. 
But how have we done this? How were we able to drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What did we do when we unchained this earth from its sun? Whither is it moving now? Whither are we moving now? Away from all suns? Are we not plunging continually backward, sideward, forward in all directions? Is there any up or down left? Are we not straying as through an infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Has it not become colder? Is not night and more night coming on all the while? Must not lanterns be lit in the morning? Do we not hear anything yet of the noise of the grave diggers who are burying God? Do we not smell anything yet of God's decomposition? God's too decomposed. God is dead. God remains dead, and we have killed him. How shall we, the murderers of all murderers, comfort ourselves? What was holiest and most powerful of all that the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood off us? What water is there for us to cleanse ourselves? What festivals of atonement, what sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we not ourselves become God simply to seem worthy of it? There has never been a greater deed, and whoever will be born after us, for the sake of this deed, he shall be part of a higher history than all history hitherto. Here the madman fell silent and looked again at his listeners, and they too were silent and stared at him in astonishment. It goes on. I read a fairly long portion of that. But I included Nietzsche because if Nietzsche is right that God is dead, meaning no knowledgeable, educated person can believe in God, then all religion is wrong. Nietzsche's target was really Judeo-Christian religion, or monotheism more generally. I'm not sure he said much of anything about Islam. But if Nietzsche is right, and there is no God, and nature is all there is, then all the religions are wrong because the defining characteristic of a religion is that it believes in God or some sacred reality. Now, the monotheistic religions believe there is an infinite personal creator, God, but other religions that are not monotheistic still hold that there is some non-natural or sacred reality, such as nirvana in Buddhism or the Tao in Taoism. So, I take a look at Nietzsche's famous parable, and I consider a few of his arguments against the existence of God. I find them to be inadequate. I'll just state one of them. One is that biblical religion is anti-life. It is anti-nature, and it sets itself against creativity and freedom. Now, on Nietzsche's worldview... As he put it, the nut of existence is hollow. There is no given intrinsic meaning, value, or significance to the cosmos. You see that in the madman parable, that we are now, apart from God, straying as through an infinite nothing. So any meaning has to be self-created, and there's no limit placed on that if there is no lawgiver and judge of the universe.
The Christian view, of course, is that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created human beings in his image and likeness as the crown of creation. So we have an intrinsic and ineradicable significance and value at the hand of God. We see that in Genesis 1 and 2. However, we find in Genesis 3 that human beings turned against their creator, and thus we now live east of Eden and under the sun, as Ecclesiastes puts it. So there's something wrong with everything in a broken, fallen, and rebellious world. So we have creation and fall, but we also have, on the biblical story, redemption. God continues to pursue human beings by revealing himself in nature, by sending prophets, ultimately by coming in the person of Jesus Christ, who said that he came to bring life and to bring it to the full. But given that this is a fallen and broken world, and that we are fallen and broken and rebels against God, we need to repent. We need to turn away from ourselves and turn towards God and accept the work of Christ on our behalf. That is the way to turn away from what is dark and evil and to turn towards the light and walk in the light. And if you have done that, if you know Christ as Lord and Savior, as I do and have since June of 1976, then you enter into a new kind of life, a supernatural life. Now, Nietzsche knows that Christianity has a lot of don'ts involved in it. Eight of the ten commandments in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5 are negative. But that's actually positive, because it says don't do certain things in order that you have room left to engage the world and be constructive in the world. So Jesus says, for example, if anyone wants to follow me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. To be a disciple of Jesus means self-denial. But being a disciple of the crucified and resurrected and ascended Lord is the best thing one could do, is the most meaningful life one could live. And there is ample evidence for a creator and designer. I spend about 250 pages on that in my book, Christian Apologetics. More to be said about Nietzsche. Nietzsche is a good enemy, and he said that thinkers should have good enemies. By that I mean he will give you a good workout if you are a Christian. And I have been interacting with Nietzsche now for good night, almost 50 years. So the next sentence I choose, and I'm going to pick up the pace here, probably, is from Judaism. And the sentence I chose here is where God reveals himself in Exodus 3, 14 to Moses as I am who I am. Moses sees a bush that is burning but is not consumed and he hears a voice and he engages in a dialogue with this voice. And of course it is God. And Moses said, what is your name? Who shall I tell the Israelites is sending me? And God says, I am who I am. Now, my focus on this is the fact that God is a self-reflective personal agent who communicates in terms that can be understood by human beings. This is not true in Buddhism or Taoism or Hinduism. 
they do not have this metaphysic that makes cognitive revelation possible. So that is my focus, that the God of the Jews and the God who created the universe and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is a personal, rational, and communicative being who reveals himself in statements, who makes promises which are fulfilled. The statement I chose for Hinduism, which is a very big tent, is taken from the Upanishads, and the statement is, you are that. There's a dialogue where a man is trying to convince another man that all is one. You are not distinct from nature or from God. All is one. This was sometimes translated in older editions, thou art that, meaning you are one with the universe, you are one with God. Now, this is just one version of Hinduism. There are several versions. This is called Advaita Vedanta, or non-dualistic Hinduism. I chose this because non-dualistic Hinduism has had a great impact in the West, especially through the counterculture and the New Age movement. This view is pantheistic, that is, everything is divine and everything is one. It can be called pantheistic monism, or another term for this is non-dualism. Now, my critique of this, and I've been critiquing non-dualism now for many years in my writing and teaching, is that this cuts against our common sense understanding terribly. Uh, We are not one with nature. We are involved with nature. We're part of ecosystems and We're involved in social systems, sociologically, economically. But we are distinct from other people, and we are distinct from God. We are not all-powerful, all-good, and so on. We are finite. We are creatures. And this form of Hinduism tells us that we are one. But we're not one with a personal, infinite God. We're just one with a unknowable something. And this is a key problem, because an unknowable something cannot reveal anything. So let's go on to Buddhism. The the sentence that I chose for Buddhism is the first of the four noble truths, life is suffering. Buddhism addresses the issue of suffering, not by claiming that there is a God who can meet us and help us in our suffering or eventually alleviate suffering, but It's a very psychological approach to suffering. It says that life is suffused with suffering. We so often have what we don't want. We don't want what we have. We are vexed by illness and death and frustration. And this suffering is based on craving, and craving can be eliminated by Buddhist practices. So, the first sentence here is, life is suffering. Buddhism, in many ways, is the great no to existence. It says the answer is to recognize that life is suffering, that suffering is caused by desire, and desire can be ultimately eliminated through Buddhist practices. And this means you could attain something called nirvana, which literally means what's left when you blow out a candle. So you desire to get off of the the wheel of suffering, the wheel of samsara, birth and rebirth, according to karma, and to attain nirvana. Now, nirvana is not a person, place, or thing. It's a state of consciousness 
and Buddhists are very stressed, as it were, or unable is a better way of putting it, to define what nirvana is, because it's so utterly unlike this world. And this is really the whole point of Buddhism, is to escape the suffering of this world by transcending desire, by detaching. Now, Buddhism is originally an atheistic religion, or perhaps an agnostic religion. The Buddha was not concerned with the existence of God, but rather with the plight of suffering and how this could possibly be addressed. I'd say if there was no God, Buddhism might be an attractive path, but since there is a God, and since there's ample evidence for the existence of God, then Buddhism really loses its allure, and the Christian perspective is so much more fulfilling because it's true and rational. The Christian perspective, as I said, is that God created a good world. We're made in the image and likeness of God, and suffering comes about because of sin against God. And God is so concerned about our plight as fallen human beings uh, that he came in the person of Jesus Christ to redeem us. And here, the figures of Buddha and Jesus could not be more different. Now, they share certain moral teachings, but the Buddha was a sage who supposedly knew the eternal Dharma that dawned on him at his moment of awakening when Siddhartha Gautama became the Buddha. But Jesus is a sage and a prophet, but he's also God incarnate, and he provides the atoning sacrifice for our sin. He rose from the dead, thus giving us hope for our own resurrection from the dead in the world to come. See 1 Corinthians 15 and so on. My next sentence is from Taoism. The famous statement, the Tao that can be spoken is not the eternal Tao. Taoism does not have millions upon millions of followers globally, the way Hinduism and Buddhism has. It's fairly small in numbers, but Taoism has a kind of philosophical appeal to some people, especially this idea that the ultimate reality or the way or the Tao cannot be spoken. So it has to be intuited or it has to be sensed somehow in nature. And here I really go after the ineffability claim that the ultimate, the truest reality is beyond words and language. That's really a self-defeating claim because you're using words and language to say you can't use words and language about the ultimate reality, but we'll just grant that for a minute. If we know nothing cognitively about the ultimate reality, then we are in the dark. We don't have any statements about what is most real, what can be trusted, how to live, and of course the Tao Te Ching, which is a small, rather enigmatic book, does give us some advice about how to live and what the world is all about, despite the statement from Lao Tzu that this is not possible. And it's interesting that a Taoist writer, trying to find this in the book, realized that there was a bit of a problem here because the writer says the Tao that can be spoken is not the eternal Tao, yet he spends hundreds and hundreds of words trying to discuss what cannot be discussed. And I found it. It's on page 104 of my book. Those who speak know nothing, 
Those who know are silent. Those words, I am told, were uttered by Lao Tzu. If we're to believe that he himself was someone who knew, why did he end up writing a book of 5,000 words? The next sentence I chose is for Christianity. And I chose the statement of Jesus in John 5.58, where Jesus is in a dispute with the religious leaders of the day. And he says, before Abraham was born, I am. And people realized he was claiming to be God. And they attempted to stone him. But it was not Jesus' time to die on the cross, so he escaped. This statement, of course, links Jesus with the statement I chose from Judaism, I am who I am. And Jesus was consciously doing that. He was saying, before Abraham existed, I existed as God. So this links Judaism and Christianity metaphysically. Of course, there are so many points of linkage, of connection, in terms of the many prophecies we find in the Hebrew Bible related to Jesus and other events. So I won't go into that too much, but in this chapter, I emphasize that Jesus had the credentials of deity. It was not simply an utterance in the dark, that he was not a deceiver. It was not like he knew he wasn't God, but somehow thought he should convince people that he was. There'd be no reason for him to do that. Nor was he deceived, a lunatic who thought he was God, but really wasn't. But really, the best explanation is that he was who he said he was. And we should come to terms with him for so many reasons. And the last sentence I'll talk about, the last religion I address in the book is Islam. And the statement here is what one says to become a Muslim and to confess Islamic belief. That sentence is, there is one God and Muhammad is his prophet. Now, Islam like Judaism and Christianity, is a monotheistic religion. It teaches there is one creator, God, who is Lord of the universe, who is the final judge, who sends prophets, and so on. But the problem with Islam is that while it claims to be the final religion and to be in continuity with Judaism and Christianity, it actually contradicts key claims of Judaism and Christianity. And we'll just stick with its claims about Jesus for a moment. The Quran and Islam claims that while Jesus was a prophet, he was not God incarnate. The Quran says, say not three, and says God has no son. So, given the biblical testimony to the deity of Jesus and to the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, Islam claims Jesus did not die on the cross. The question should be, why believe Islam over the Bible concerning Jesus? And I find no reason to do so. The Quran supposedly was received by Muhammad, who was supposedly illiterate. There are 114 chapters in the Quran, or surahs, and these were later recited to Muhammad's followers who wrote them down. They eventually became the Quran. And they deny certain claims in the Hebrew Bible. They deny the Trinity. They deny the Incarnation. They deny that we find salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. It substitutes works for grace and so on. And 
there's no reason to believe this because the Bible is substantiated by the development of its themes. We have 66 books written over about 2,000 years by about 40 different authors. With the New Testament, we have multiple witnesses to the life and uh, teachings of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels in the testimony of Paul and Peter, and so on. So about 610 AD, a man goes into a cave to meditate and seek God, and somehow he comes up with a purported revelation that contradicts key elements of Scripture. I find no reason to believe that. Now, let me say, concluding, that I respect the freedom of religion in the United States, that uh, Jewish folks and Hindus and Buddhists and Taoists and Muslims and anyone else have in our nation the right to believe and practice their own religions. However, the right to believe something doesn't mean your belief is right. That is, that it's correct, that it corresponds to reality. So what I'm doing in this book is twofold. I'm trying to explain the nature of these religions, and I start out by looking at Nietzsche's version of atheism. I think I'm fair to the religions. I don't think I caricature any religion. And I realize that other sentences could be taken, and that in Judaism, Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, Islam, there are different schools of these religions. So, I try to defend myself from attacks that I'm being arbitrary or tendentious in what I have selected. However, I am unapologetic about being an apologist, meaning I argue that Christianity is true, compellingly rational, and pertinent to the whole of life, and that the Christian worldview is the best worldview, meaning it is rationally supported by science and history and personal experience, and that Jesus Christ is, in fact, God incarnate, the way, the truth, and the life. So I believe that I can make this argument through this book and still be fair to the religions that I address. And in about a week from now, a week and a half from now, I'll be having a dialogue with a Jewish rabbi about the biblical understanding of sin, and they very much look forward to that so I hope this has been helpful the book again is called World Religions in Seven Sentences a small introduction to a vast topic you might find that helpful this has been Truth Tried with Doug Rodheis if you'd like to be helped by some of my resources or would like me to perhaps speak at your church or for your organization you can go to douglasgrotheis.com If you like this podcast, please tell friends about it. Truth Tribe is a production of Life Audio and Salem Media. If you liked what you heard today, please take a second to rate and review this podcast in your favorite podcast app so that more listeners like you can find the show. For more faith-filled, inspirational podcasts, visit us at lifeaudio.com. I found myself on a ledge, three stories high at some condominiums, contemplating my life and struggling to understand my purpose. Have you ever found yourself on the ledge? My name is Billy Yates. I'm a caring father, mentor, and friend in my new podcast, 
Billy and the Goat. I share the life-changing events that shaped who I am today to remind you that no matter how far you've fallen, God can help you get up and thrive. Listen now at lifeaudio.com.